Welcome everyone, I am Kale Flegey and this is the Made in Gainesville podcast. On this show, you'll hear stories and get insights from business owners and leaders from across the nation that have ties to Gainesville. On this episode, we'll hear from Joe Lowry Sr., a managing partner at Lowry Financial Advisors. Joe started his firm in Miami, and after getting tired of the Miami hustle, he created a checklist of the ideal characteristics of a city that he wanted to relocate his family and practice to. Gainesville hit all the marks on his checklist, and he moved here in the late 80s. Additionally, Joe will share his advice on how to handle friends and family members asking to borrow money, as well as tips on how to increase your net worth. Enjoy! So you started your practice in Miami, and you moved to Gainesville. Why the change? Uh, Well, I grew up in Miami. I was born there, uh, and... Um, uh, as I, as Miami began to, uh, grow larger and become, or I guess, trans transition from a smaller to a, uh, more densely populated metropolitan area, uh, navigating traffic, uh, higher crime rates, uh, and higher times uh, getting across town or where we needed to go for our kids' activities, all of those things kind of combined to create an environment where one afternoon in 1987, I came home uh, and I declared to my wife, if you want me to be in any kind of condition by the time I hit 60, I need to live somewhere that when I'm not working, I can feel relaxed. So we proceeded to develop a list of uh, criteria uh, or points that we felt we needed to satisfy in order to ensure that we weren't moving away uh, or relocating for the wrong reasons. Uh, And then we commenced a one-year search around the state of Florida and elsewhere to determine uh, if we could find a place that we might uh, enjoy more uh, to continue raising our family in an environment that was more relaxing for me to work in. So you essentially just came up with a checklist of all the bullet points that you wanted to hit and you picked a town. I feel like many people don't get to do that. They get pulled to a town based on you know job or family commitments, but you were just able to go wherever you wanted essentially. Yeah, you know, in retrospect, that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, I, for whatever reason, I've always been blessed with a um, kind of a positive expectancy um, uh, that uh, if I took action uh, in those areas that were important to me and it was for the right reasons, that the rest would follow. And um, and so that's essentially what drove this decision. We did have uh, our bullet points, and the most prominent ones were good schools for our children, uh, a healthy business environment, uh, a reasonable, uh, uh, reasonably long-term growth expectation for the area. For example, one of my criteria was that we needed to live uh, at least 20 years from urban sprawl. Uh, good health care facilities was another one, uh, and reasonably good air access for business travel or pleasure travel. So uh, those were the, probably the most dominant criteria. 
So you said you moved here from Miami in 1987. I like to imagine the scenario where you're working in finance in Miami in the late 80s, and these drug kingpins were just bringing in briefcases of cash into your office, and it got a little hot, and you had to move up to Gainesville. <laughs> so is this the case, or, or was it... <laughs> Was to the that con- not the case at all? To the contrary. Uh, thankfully, that never happened, uh, which is probably why I'm still alive. Um, the, uh, actually, uh, the, the search started in 1987. We gave ourselves a year. So that took us from the summer of 87 to the summer of 88. Uh, and uh, I think it was July of 88 we made our decision. Uh, so uh, I actually relocated to Gainesville for business January of 89, and uh, started working here while we undertook to sell our home in Miami and have the kids finish that year of school, uh, the remaining year of school, and uh, it gave us the opportunity to select uh, a building lot and to start building a home that would be ready uh, when they were ready to move to Gainesville. So you're a financial advisor? Yes. Why did you decide to get into this business? Um, I always had an interest in finance, uh, although I came to where I am in a somewhat indirect route. Um, the, um, uh, when I was in my early teens, my mother had a very strong interest in the stock market and had uh, been doing some business with a broker uh, in Miami, and he was conducting some classes on investing and uh, she uh, invited me to come along with her, which I did, and so I developed an early interest in stocks uh, at that time. Uh, and also, uh, my father had started a business uh, uh, venture, and uh, I held shares in that business venture. Um, and uh, uh, so I think you know that was was kind of where the start happened. Uh, I say that it happened in, that I am where I am indirectly because uh, when I got out of college, I took a position as a management trainee in a savings and loan in Miami uh, or a savings bank institution and uh, uh, subsequently became uh, dissatisfied with that uh, opportunity left the bank and ultimately uh, uh, took an offer from New York Life Insurance Company. And uh, that was, in essence, the start of where I am today. You said you had shares in your father's business. What business was that? My father was a uh, commercial electrical contractor, did large commercial projects uh, like the uh, uh, like Disney World, the first uh, area of Disney World uh, that was laid out, uh, most of the lunar um, uh, moonshot construction at Cape Canaveral, he did the electrical on that, the vertical assembly building, the arming tower, other facilities. Uh, he had contracts with the Air Force bases in Florida, with the Air Force, uh, he did sugar mills, uh, uh, rubber plantations in uh, South America, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, So uh, the venture that I had an interest in directly was air conditioning. And when air conditioners first came to Florida, uh, there was a company by the name of Fetters Air Conditioning, and he had the distributorship for South Florida for Fetters Air Conditioning. And 
So subsequently, we all had shares in that company. So I didn't know that about your dad's dad's business. That's yeah. pretty cool. Did you get any perks growing up? You know, with them working on Disney or at NASA, or were you able to go out and see that you know construction? Happening? Oh yeah, yeah. I was able to visit the job sites. Uh, I remember uh, more vividly uh, Cape 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 Kennedy or Cape Canaveral, uh, and uh, that was an awesome experience uh, going there. Uh, and visit, I visited a number of jobs. When I was in high school, I would work at the company in the summers. I would drive a, a delivery truck. I'd drive and deliver um, electrical materials, pipes, tubing, um, transformers, whatever equipment was needed on a job site. I would typically del- make those deliveries. Uh, or I'd work in the mechanical shop and learn that aspect, uh, learn a lot about mechanics then. And, other things. Um, so uh, it was great. Enjoyed it very much. Yeah. So then you were around for the lunar program. Did you feel like you had a little extra connection to that when, since your dad was able to work on those launch sites? Yeah. Well, I think, of course, I think naturally. I think in many ways I felt, uh, you know, I can drive through, there's a little city in um, uh, Florida called O'Galley, uh, which is just to the uh, west of. Um, Melbourne in that area, a little bit south of there. And uh, I remember, because the name is so unusual, I remember that, uh, you know, his company installed the first street lighting in O'Galley. So every time I drive by O'Galley, you know, I remember that. Uh, Or uh, um, other places I go, if I drive by the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach or the Deauville or any of those older hotels, all of the air conditioning originally was installed by Lowry of Florida. So, of course, there's a, you know, there's an association there. Obviously, anything construction-related, there's always something going wrong. Can you recall anything that was particularly particularly unusual problem that happened? In the electrical business? Yes. Uh, well, I think one of the things that discouraged me from uh, going into the contracting business was, um, were labor issues. And, uh, you know, I... Uh, just remember uh, going on some business trips and, uh, uh, you know, the overhearing in the other room <laughs> in the hotel when the, you know, as uh, conversations were being had. And uh, it's just contracting on a large scale is a very complex uh, business. And uh, that aspect of it uh, never really appealed to me. I think the other thing is I, I'm not particularly mechanically gifted. So I never felt uh, any affinity or, uh, uh, you know, attraction to the business in that way. Um, so um, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I, I think probably it was just the kind of the hard hardball negotiation aspect of it. My father was a was pretty extraordinary guy in my eyes and uh, was, uh, you know, uh, born in 1917, was... Uh, Grew up during the Depression, building his, built his business up during the Depression and during World War II, uh, and he was uh, forced to be reckoned with. So I had great admiration for him. He was a person of great integrity in business. So, What's the <laughs> best habit that you picked up from him? Um, I would say I, I think that uh, he was impeccable in his integrity, in his business integrity. Um, uh, I remember once he told a story, it was one of many that I heard, 
where he was sitting at his office one day in my in Coral Gables, where his office was, and uh, these three men came in and you know dressed back then. Of course, everything business was always suit and tie, and so um, they came in and uh, asked to see him. They came in and sat down, and he was in the process, I think, of uh, uh, negotiating or preparing a bid for the Fountain Blue Hotel. And uh, they proceeded to tell him that they were prepared to offer him a uh, certain financial incentives if he were to bid the job in a certain way. Uh, And uh, he promptly told them that he didn't do business that way and uh, invited them to leave his office. Later that afternoon, he received a phone call from the owner of the property of the of the of the hotel, telling him that uh, he had passed the test, that uh, those men were really there representing him, and uh, they just needed to know that he would deal with them in a fair and upright way. You had mentioned um, that you got interested in this profession by your mother worked with a broker. What is the difference between a broker and a financial advisor? Um, a broker, as the name implies, is, is a go-between. You know, we think of a real estate broker or a business broker or any type of a broker. I think the I haven't looked up the term for its official def- de- definition, but, uh, you know, I would interpret a broker as someone who is an intermediary, who uh, you come to me, you want me to obtain something for you, I broker the transaction and, and take a commission or a piece of the transaction as my compensation. An advisor is someone who um, does not always or does not necessarily have to handle a, a transaction per se, uh, but uh, I think the advisory aspect implies a global view uh, of your situation and then advises what actions to take. So that would be, and then is compensated uh, for that advice in some form, either by time or by contract, whatever that might be. So your practice as it stands now is Lowry Financial Advisors. Uh, What is the nature of that practice? The nature of Lowry Financial Advisors is uh, twofold. Actually, Lowry Financial Advisors uh, uh, operates uh, in conjunction with two other financial affiliates. One is Lowry and Lowry, and also Lowry Insurance Services. Lowry Financial Advisors is, as the name applies, a financial advisor. We advise clients for a fee. Um, uh, Clients come to us with financial um, questions, financial concerns or problems, uh, and then we undertake to to help them uh, find solutions to those problems or to clarify uh, questions that they might have. Um, and so I would typify Lowry Financial Advisors as a fee-based uh, advisory company. As I mentioned, we have a financial affiliate Lowry and Lowry. Uh, if a client determines through their advisory affiliation with us that they would like for us to implement a decision on their behalf, then that transaction would be something that would fall into the category of uh, fee-based investment management versus fee-based advice in Lowry Financial Advisors. 
So uh, we would handle managing those investments, typically for, on a, for a fee, uh, which would be a percentage of assets under management. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, in some cases, uh, a client may wish to have uh, an insurance need satisfied if they do not have an existing uh, insurance broker or agent. Uh, we can step up and offer to handle that transaction for them as well. Uh, in any of those activities, uh, there is never an expectation that one requires the other. For example, if you become a financial advisory client, there is no expectation that you have to execute any other business with us other than the advisory aspect. But we find that many times people would like for us to do that and so uh, those actions are fully disclosed and uh, as well as any potential conflicts of interest that might be present. What is the most misunderstood aspect of a financial advisory practice? Well, I think uh, probably the most common one is that it's too expensive. Not, not that it's too expensive per se, but that uh, um, maybe I can't afford it. Uh, might be one. And I, my response to that is uh, many people cannot afford not to uh, because uh, whatever it is, money drives our lives, pays our bills. Um, it uh, allows us to fund our dreams, uh, to uh, cover anticipated risks. And, uh, and, and so I think the most common misconception is that maybe a financial advisor would be too expensive to retain. And I, th I think uh, when you look at the way our practice is structured, um, you can obtain our services on either a flat rate or on an hourly basis. And, uh, you know, we don't discriminate based on how much money someone has uh, or doesn't have in order to be able to render advice. What would you say the average ages of your clients? Uh, the average age of our advisory clients probably, I would guesstimate, would be mid-50s, uh, probably. Do you feel that people wait too long to get financial advice? Do you think their situation would be a lot better if they chose to get financial advice from a professional earlier on in their lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, uh, it's like many other things. Uh, it's like disease, you know, the earlier it can be detected, the greater the chance of recovery. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, there are just certain things that can't be solved by watching a YouTube video. What is the best advice that you can give people to improve their finances? Take advantage of every uh, possible tax shelter that's available. Uh, most people work for uh, someone else or work for or in a business that has some type of a tax qualified retirement plan, a 401k or a simple plan or, or something of that nature. Uh, and I would say maximize uh, every dollar you can into those plans because they're growing tax deferred. And uh, the money you would have paid in income tax is allowed to remain in those accounts. And not only are you making money on your money, but you're making money on the money that would have gone to Washington in the form of income taxes, and you're not taxed on it until ultimately you draw it out. How can somebody strike a balance between saving for the future and you know, enjoying life now? Well, uh, that becomes a subjective uh, uh, decision. Uh, 
I think what we can do is we can uh, map out and or project with reasonable accuracy based on prior uh, investment performance uh, what is possible. And uh, I I do feel that in many instances, uh, people wait too long to enjoy the fruits of their labors uh, because there's no question that as we age, the probability of disease or disability uh, or other some some other type of incapacitation, uh, you know, will occur in one or the other of our lives or our spouse's life or partner's life. And um, I think the saddest thing is that people that uh, wait to retire, so to speak, and then are too sick to travel and can't fully enjoy what they've accumulated, or they lose their partner and uh, the opportunity to have enjoyed those activities with them. What advice would you give to people who are approached by someone that would like to borrow money? Well, um, it's interesting you ask because that can happen on several levels. Uh, I would say the most vulnerable, uh, in my experience, the most vulnerable people to a loan request are widowed mothers. Um, Mothers instinctively want to help their children they want to bless their lives, nurture them, and so forth. This is a natural tendency. Uh, the problem is uh, not all children are, um, I would say, highly principled in this regard. So, uh, you know, uh, they see that their mother has come into this money by virtue of their father's death or a lawsuit that resulted in money on a, on a parent's death. And, uh, and of course, they know they can go to mom and mom will help them. So I, one of the first things I do with a recently widowed individual is I have this conversation uh, of how they should expect that children and other family members or other individuals unrelated will come to them and request money. And that in order to protect their financial well-being for the long haul, they need to resist these and get advice on how this might be structured. Uh, this also can relate to parents who are approached by a child or children who want to borrow money for a business venture or some other purpose. And what I've learned about family loans in particular is rarely do they result in happy endings. Um, so, uh, you know, invariably, uh, if you have several children, the children who don't get the money or the money is not loaned to will feel that they had an unfair advantage. The people you loan the money to, uh, if they can't pay it back, will begin to reduce their contact with you because they're embarrassed or ashamed or can't make the payments. So what we advise people to do is just decide how much money you can give the person, whether it's a family member or another person. Somebody comes to you with a request, confer together as a couple and say, well, if we were going to give this person money, how much would we give them? and not worry about it. And then sit down with the, with, the, with the individual requesting the loan and say, you know, we've talked about this as a, we have a policy that we don't loan money, but where we feel there is merit, we will make a gift. And so we're going to give you X thousands of dollars or X hundreds of dollars, whatever it is, with no expectation of repayment. Now, at an interesting case with a client, a wealthy client, whose daughter came to him for a loan, she and her husband, and uh, they wanted $25,000. Uh, 
The father knew that this was a questionable venture, and uh, he had adopted this policy on our advice of not loaning, sat down with his daughter and told her that they had considered the request and would give her and her husband $5,000 and hoped that that would help them launch this venture. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, it's been over 15 years and the daughter has never spoken to them again, which underscores the fact that it probably was not a reputable venture anyway. And not only this, uh, the same child has gone to other family members where she has inflicted significant financial damage uh, in the several hundred thousand dollars of monies that were borrowed or taken and will never be repaid. So. Uh, if it's a friend uh, uh, or some other thing, it's a smaller amount of money, you should ask to have the loan secured. If somebody needs money, uh, say, well, fine, let's, uh, l- let me put a lien on your car or I'd like to put a lien on your house or uh, you know, some other thing so that they can demonstrate their commitment to the fact that whatever they're requesting money for will be, um, uh, you know, will be repaid used to have a marketing campaign where you were the money man. How come you don't use that marketing name anymore? Well, actually, it wasn't a campaign. It was uh, simply, uh, it was at a time when vanity license plates were kind of the, the thing. And so I had just purchased a Corvette. And uh, so I thought, oh, I'll see if anybody has money man. And so in Florida, you're limited to seven uh letters or or figures on your license plate. So it was M-O-N-Y-M-A-N. And uh, so, you know, I thought it was kind of cool. And uh, one day my wife and I were in Orlando and uh, on pleasure and I'm at a stoplight and I hear a horn beeping and I look over and there were two rather questionable looking gentlemen and a rather questionable looking vehicle and uh, uh, they motioned for me to roll the window down, and which I did. And one of them said, Hey, are you the money man? <laughs> to which I promptly rolled up my window and um, uh, proceeded to take the first right turn possible <laughs> to to uh, uh, move as far away from them as I could. And then the following uh, week, I was down at the tag agency and got a, a generic tag for my car. So. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you, Gail. Please visit LowryFinancialAdvisors.com for important financial disclosures.